Good morning, Jason Jennings. Good morning, Jason. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide, your premier audio guide to the workplace, speaking today with none other than Jason Jennings. Jason Jennings is a self-described author, speaker, and consultant. I guess what I am is uh, an individual uh, who a decade ago, uh, after having spent about 20 years in business, uh, one day realized two things. Uh, one, uh, I had a lot more questions than I did answers. And I was truly looking for something that would uh, feed my soul. Uh, I had cracked the code on, on making money in business, but uh, I really wanted my soul to be fed. And uh, as the story goes, I actually considered, uh, at the age of 40, becoming a second career seminarian. Uh, but at the urging of the head of the seminary, who said, uh, we'd be happy to have you as a student here, but I, I really don't think you want a master's in divinity and to be an ordained uh, pastor, he said, but I, I think I have figured out your ministry. And I said, what's that? And he said, in getting to know you, he said, it's so obvious that you love leadership done well, and you love business done well, and you have little time for leadership and business done poorly. He said, I really think your ministry might be to identify uh, the, the best leaders and the best companies in the world and write about them and talk about them. And so 10 years ago, my career took a decidedly different turn, and then I got lucky. The first book was a big New York Times bestseller, and as they say, the rest is history. And that book was? Uh, that book was called It's Not the Big That Eat the Small, It's the Fast That Eat the Slow. And it was a story uh, about the 10 fastest companies on the planet. You know, a decade ago, speed was very hot. Everybody wanted to be fast. And in the final analysis, after studying more than 40,000 companies, uh, we determined that speed has nothing to do with physical speed or uh, just moving fast for the sake of moving fast. Instead, speed has everything to do with thinking fast, deciding fast, getting to market fast, and maintaining momentum. And those were the big findings of that book. For people who are listening to McLaughlin at Work and speaking here today with Jason Jennings and a great opportunity to do so, I always look forward to being able to speak to people who have who operate in different media, uh, author and a speaker and a consultant. What do you consider yourself? Uh, I really consider myself to be uh, uh, two things. Um, I, I consider myself to be first and foremost uh, a very good researcher. Uh, and then I'd like to think that I have the ability to take the findings and explain them in such a way that they are easily understandable and actionable by the listener. And those are the two things that I think I'm, I'm called to do. I guess if I, if I were asked to describe the one talent I have, it would be the ability to look at a lot of complicated stuff, uh, a lot of disparate information, and put it together in easily understandable fashion. Do you think you're smart? Uh, you know, I, I, I like self-deprecating humor, and I always make sure that I'm the butt of uh, all of my <laughs> jokes. Uh, and I, on occasion, uh, use the phrase that I'm not the brightest bulb on the string. Um, but because the question was asked with such sincerity, I guess I need to respond the same way. No, I, I, I'm serious about it, because I think this issue about 
smart and wise uh, are are uh, important questions to ask. And I think also the, the reason I ask it is really to see what your answer is, because in this day and age, um, believability is in part from experience and in presentation, but it's also a confidence in what you're saying, uh, not Bernie Madoff notwithstanding. Right. Uh, there, there is a um, you, you. You're selling something. You're selling your research. And um, do you think you have a better answer? Do you do you do something better than others, which is why people ought to listen to you? Uh, I, I, I think I do. Uh, and l- let me respond to the question this way: um, I do about eighty speeches a year uh, around the world. Uh, very often those audiences are, uh, sometimes they're three or 400 people, but sometimes they're four or 5,000 people. Uh, and uh, the most fearful thing uh, would be to stand on stage in front of thousands of people in the middle of your teaching and have somebody shout out, he's a fraud, he's an imposter, I don't believe a word he says. And, and because that's always been a fear in my life, uh, and, and it's it's a well-studied uh, um, uh, idea, uh, the, the great imposter theory is what it's called, and many people suffer from it. I guess I've gone to the extreme on my research because I, I don't think I could survive something like that happening. I wouldn't know what to do. And so I just go the extra mile on the research because I believe that everything you talk about uh, in a speech, everything you write in a book, people actually read books, people actually take action on what they read in books. People actually, because they're looking for answers, listen to keynote speakers. They actually take action on what they've been taught. And therefore, I think that the the speaker, the author, uh, has to operate with uh, the utmost of responsibility uh, and caution and humility. And and you've got to make sure you're rendering good advice. Uh, In response to your question, my smart, well, I'm smart enough, I think, to do that very well. And that's a good answer. I like that. Uh, when people look, to, why why does corporate America reach out to speakers? Is it because they have a meeting and they've got a slot to fill? Are they looking for inspiration, which is maybe people reason why people buy books, particularly in this environment? Although publishers seem to be a as as along with other elements of the economy hurting as much as others, I, I see that. Did I understand from my friend uh, Jack Covert uh, over one eight hundred CEO Rita? I know is a friend of yours as well. Um, that there that there are something like eleven thousand business books written a year. Uh, there are actually a total of about uh, two hundred thousand total books published a year, and I've heard the number of uh, books about business and leadership ranging anywhere. I've heard a low of eight. I've ha- heard a high of fifteen. So uh, I guess that number of twelve is. Uh, uh, right in the middle. As, as to why people hire an author or someone to speak uh, at an event, um, I, I, I think sometimes uh, they're looking for celebrity. I think sometimes they're looking for motivation. I think sometimes they're looking for information. And I believe that uh, every group is different. Uh, I remember a few years ago, um, I, I was walking down a street with a speaking agent that uh, books me a, a lot, and he had just seen a speech I did, and he said to me, he said, God, you were so motivational today, and I, I kind of felt like I'd been kicked in the bum, and I said, no, you get it wrong. Uh, 
I said, I don't motivate people. If they're motivated by the information, that's fine, but I, I certainly don't want to be dismissed as being a motivator. And he stopped me, and he said, that's a very arrogant comment. <laughs> and, and this is the way people talk to me, uh, Paul. And, uh, Thank and you, I, Jason. I didn't and, need to be abrupt with you. I, I'm interested in how you do it. And, and, I, and, I, and I said, I said excuse me, what do you mean? And he said, Jason, you have to understand. He said, when people walk into a ballroom or walk into a meeting room and they're about to hear a speaker, he said, different people are needing different things at that point in their life. Uh, some might need a little bit of motivation. Some might need information. Some might be ready for a sea change in their life. And he said, when you're in the front of the room, you're responsible for delivering all of those things because different people are needing different things at different times. I, I thought that was great advice. Yeah. And you have to, um, much like McLaughlin at work here, the premier audio guide to the workplace, you have to entertain. If you don't capture people's, both their imagination and their minds early, they will be drifty. Uh, they certainly will be. And uh, what is life worth without a few laughs and giggles along the way? Are you a good so, joke teller? Uh, I... I, I I think I'm probably pretty good with humor, but I think most of my humor uh, shares two things in common. One, uh, it's based on experiences uh, that I've had, and I generally end up being the butt of the joke. And when those two things uh, exist, then I think I'm very funny. Yes, I, I make people laugh, and uh, and you need to do that in order to have their attention. Uh, but my humor is not uh, getting a joke from someone and, and telling that joke, but instead is based on experiences that I have uh, out there traveling a couple hundred thousand miles a year. We, we do want to speak, uh, we do want to address your book. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, we're talking today, and the book is uh, Hit the Ground Running, a Manual for New Leaders. I did see that it was reviewed in the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday. Uh, and, and if you can imagine, after 237 great reviews of my work, uh, that is the most lukewarm review I've, I've ever had. And I thought about it and decided, first of all, not to obsess about it, uh, but I decided that uh, uh, if this uh, reviewer had, had read the book, I, th I think the review would a little bit bit, a bit different. I, th I think I got a drive-by. Uh, I think he picked up the book, glanced at a couple of chapters. Uh, for example, he uh, went on about uh, Ron Sargent, the CEO of uh, Staples, and that I had let him blather on. Uh, yeah, about, I'm looking at it. It was uh, blather uh, on. That, yeah, that, about, I'll, uh, I'll put that in quotes. Yeah, about, uh, about customer service. Uh, at Staples, uh, one, uh, that's not what the chapter was about, uh, and two, there were two paragraphs uh, about the company's commitment to public service. So, um, uh, but I, I, I guess I've been waiting for one lukewarm review, and if out of 237 reviews of all of my works uh, in major newspapers and publications over the past decade, if you get one lukewarm, you just have to move on with life. Yeah, absolutely, and there's no such thing as uh, as bad publicity. Uh, that's what my publisher tells me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I would add um, on a uh, uh, McLaughlin at work note that Phillips Delves Broughton was on this show with his book. Yes. Ahead of the curve, two years at the Harvard Business School. And we had the opportunity to talk to him. He's a very interesting fellow. Uh, but I, I must say that uh, having met him and talked to him for, at, at some length about his book and his experience at Harvard, 
Um, I would share your your comment. I I, I looked at it, uh, read it through. Uh, actually read the review before I read the book, and I guess that's what most people in New York do about Broadway plays. Um, and I, I, I thought he, um, I thought he, frankly, was unfair. And I thought that his 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 um, conclusion. I want to get back into the book. This is not about reviews, but it's an interesting element, is um, because it speaks to a little bit about you get reviewed, you get critiqued on your speeches every time. And I noticed right. on your website that you you post your reviews. I don't know whether you're going to post this, post this one. You know what? As a matter of fact, we are. I sent out the uh, email yesterday. I am, uh, uh, I believe, in complete transparency. Uh, I, 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 I just I think that's very, very important. And so, of course, it will be posted along uh, with all the other uh, reviews. I think the Internet uh, and the web is about the democratization of information uh, about the democratization of all information, not just the information that you want to put out there. Well, well put, and I think that that uh, that fits in with a lot of what we have uh, been talking about here on McLaughlin Work, particularly from a marketing perspective and social networking, and a lot of the things that go on uh, around the employment area. That uh, whether it's transparency or openness or not trying to deny your employees' access to this thing called the web, which I think we're tr- still trying to swallow and understand, is an important part of leadership. But let, let, me, let me get back to Jason Jennings. You've been very kind to talk about a little bit about uh, away from the book, and um, we're going to come back to that because I find that fascinating. And one of the things that I would like to, uh, like to hold until the end of our discussion, because I think people would be interested in hearing it, from somebody who is an author, a speaker, and a consultant, is a little bit about, for, as a practical guide for people who are good at what they do, how they become accomplished speakers. So just in that, I'd like to hold that element as, as part of the tutorial. So I see that your book, Hit the Ground Running, is a manual for new leaders. Uh, I, I'd, I'd ask you to share your skill at the podium or away from the podium uh, with uh, the listeners of McLaughlin at work at the end, tell me about um, tell me a little bit about your book, Hit the Ground Running, and I uh, give us an indication of why you selected. I, I, I did read the book. I understand why you did, but for people who are contemplating mm-hmm. reading the book, how did you arrive at this kind of storytelling and these particular companies? Okay, um, my previous books uh, were largely about uh, issues. Uh, it's not the big that eat the small, it's the fast that eat the slow, it was about speed. Uh, my next book, uh, we, uh, myself and my research team, studied 44,000 companies, and we determined the, the 10 most productive companies on the planet. So that book was about productivity. And then for my last book, Think Big, Act Small, it was about growth. It was about uh, identifying those companies who had grown revenues and profits organically, double digits every year for a decade. And I, I felt, and so those were largely about companies and what the companies did. And so a couple of years ago, I was sitting down with my publisher, Adrian Zakheim from Penguin Putnam in New York, and I said, I think I want to go in a different direction. I, I said, increasingly, it's so obvious that companies are just uh, groups of people, and you have leaders at top, and, and then you have people following who are the workers. And I, I really want to write about people. And, and, and he said, well, which people? And I said, I really want to find the 10 best new CEOs. And he said, well, what do you mean by new? And I said, well, I truly believe, although it's uh, universally hated in business, I believe that Sarbanes-Oxley was one of the best things that uh, ever came about. 
Uh, you'll recall that after the dot-com crisis and companies were falling all over the place just hardly even a decade ago, um, it turned out that many companies' financial statements were just absolutely fraudulent. They were fairy tales. And Sarbanes-Oxley, for the uninitiated, uh, uninitiated, basically says that a company's CEO is going to sign a company's financial statements, and uh, if later it's determined uh, he or she signed a document and there was anything factually or materially incorrect, uh, they're going to go off uh, to the Huskow for a while. And so I really believe that starting in 2001... And, and really, and really for, from that also opened a whole new era of responsibility on the part of senior corporate management and it boards. It, 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 it did. In the for-profit sector yep. and in the not-for-profit sector, even though it was not designed to do that. Yep. And so I felt for the first time you could actually compare companies' financial statements uh, like apples to apples or oranges to oranges because they weren't fairy tales. So we set out, and uh, of the Fortune 1000, uh, which accounts for 80% of all publicly traded activity in the U.S., there had been 380 new CEOs from the, from the year 2000 forward. We determined that 320 of them uh, were still serving in office. We determined that 290 of them had been there at least three years. Uh, our cutoff period, we felt a CEO had to be there that length of time to properly evaluate them. And then we did the calculations on, on which CEOs, which new CEOs, had created the greatest amount of economic value. Uh, the challenge in the book uh, that I don't write about in the book was gaining access to these people. Um, it's one thing to communicate with a company and say, we want to write about your company. Companies are generally very willing and uh, willing to that prospect. Uh, but we couldn't lie or misrepresent ourselves. We had to say, uh, we want to write about your CEO. Uh, that's scary, uh, very frightening. And it took us a year uh, to gain access to every single one of these CEOs, and we had to jump through every hoop imaginable uh, to gain full, unbridled access to these CEOs for the length of time we needed them. Uh, and so, then it was... Stop there for a second, if I may interrupt. Yes. Um, what was the key element that prompted them to want to speak to Jason Jennings and his research team? Well, Paul, consider this. Uh, a CEO is besieged by media requests and, and under... Uh, under siege by hundreds or thousands of people trying to gain access to them. Uh, and I, I, I think it's simply a sales process. Uh, you have to prove your mettle. You've got to convince them that you're worthy. That, that was the big word that I used with the research team during this year of gaining access. How do we prove that we are worthy to this individual? Uh, do we prove our worthiness? Um, by uh, by my previous works, uh, that can certainly be part of it. Uh, can we uh, prove our worthiness by just being dogged and determined and never giving up? Uh, that's part of it. Um, can we prove our worthiness by having other people to communicate communicate to them the goodness of of, of what I do? Uh, and, and so it was different with every CEO. In some cases, we got in because we were dogged and determined and befriended their biggest vendors and suppliers and befriended members of their boards of directors and asked them for their help. And, and they finally caved and gave us access. Uh, another CEO finally called up who, who I had had no luck getting and uh, said, you know, over the weekend, uh, I read your last three books. I really like them. I think you will do a good job. So in that case, it was the previous works. 
but it was just dogged determination uh, to gain access to these people. And there were some who said no. Uh, no, there were none that said no. no none that said no. No, okay. we, we got through to every single one of them that we determined we wanted in the book, every single one. And did any of them put uh, restrictions on what you could say about them after you had conducted your research? No, one of the things that I do with everybody, and I, I just I see it as a safety mechanism, and I see it as leading me to greater accuracy, um, when I am with a CEO... I may generate, in terms of interviews, a thousand or a thousand fifteen hundred pages of transcripts. Uh, every interview is recorded, it's transcribed, and then what I do is I send a copy of the transcript back to the CEO or back to the individual, and they have the right uh, if if there's something that they want to black out uh, because it's proprietary information or because they misspoke, uh, they have the right to black that out. Now let me suggest this. Um, out of uh, the 30 or 40,000 pages in total, we generated 100,000 pages of transcripts. But the CEO that would make a hell of a book. Uh, just by itself. <laughs> uh, in, this, uh, in this economy, I'm sure your friends at Portfolio said, hey, we've got to trim that down. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> and, uh, but the CEO interviews themselves were probably 30,000 pages of transcripts, I guess. Um, we, we sent them out uh, one at a time to the CEOs, uh, and not one came back with a change. So um, uh, we give them the right to review the transcripts and take out anything that's proprietary or a misspeak or something they want to reconsider. Nobody did. Paul McLaughlin speaking with Jason Jennings, uh, author of Hit the Ground Running, a manual for new leaders. He's going to be talking about the manual for new leaders is based, if you will, sort of on a case study of people who have been successful in their roles in the past. We draw your attention to the sponsor here at McLaughlin at Work, which is Classroom 24-7 web learning and certi certification training. Uh, and if you need to, uh, if that's part of your business model and something you need, we encourage you to access Classroom 24-7. They do a good job at their particular uh, piece of the pie, which is an important one. Web learning is part of what the business is all about. Back to Jason Jennings and hit the ground running. What let me see. Where do, you, where do you start with the, putting this piece together? Let me let me ask the, the rather obvious question to me, um, and that is: Harvard Business School, as a business factory, mm -hmm. uh, has a case method. Right. Uh, it is pilloried in some places who don't use the case method. That depends, I think, on on part of the. The, uh, the mindset of the individuals who go there and why they want to go there certainly is successful. It's certainly one way of doing it. In this case, uh, is the, what is the value of learning how others did it way back when, even if that way back when in the speed of business today was only two, three, or four, five to ten years ago? Address that in terms yeah. of uh, the manual for new leaders. What do you learn from some schmuckish schmuckers who uh, did it differently uh, back then? You know, I don't know uh, that that in itself uh, would be that valid. Uh, if I went into uh, schmuckers, jams, and jellies, and I learned one thing, and then I went to Mohawk Industries, and I learned another thing, and I went to Staples, and I learned another thing, uh, I, I think you'd probably end up with just a collection 
of, of tactics, but you'd have to understand what we did next with these near 100,000 pages of transcripts. Uh, we, uh, the old-fashioned way with highlighters in hand, uh, read them, and uh, every time we came to an aha moment or something we considered brilliant or insightful, we would highlight it. Uh, at the end uh, of that process, uh, we ended up with a couple of thousand pages of highlighted material, and then what we started looking for uh, were similarities between these CEOs, and I think that's what gives it validity. And I think it is fair to say the book is divided into ten chapters, which I call the ten rules. Um, and, and I think it's fair to say that it wasn't one rule at one company, another rule at another company, but that these ten things were common to all of these people. Uh, and so I think the reader has to determine for themselves the validity of the work, but if you if you determine the ten CEOs, new CEOs, who created the greatest amount of economic value in the new century, and you were able to have access to the ten things that they share in common, uh, I, I would consider that to be very valid. You know, we do not have uh, a school for CEOs. It's on-the-job training. And, and for people taking over uh, as managers, supervisors, or leaders within an organization, I happen to believe, uh, I, I, I have a different view than many people, but I believe that everything we've been taught, all, all the business leaders uh, who have been our celebrated heroes in recent years, I think have now been revealed as either not having the answers or as greedy fraudsters. And so I, I believe that we're living in a new time. I think there's a call for a new form of leadership. I think it is transparent. I think it is humble. I really think it's about stewardship. Uh, so what gives it validity? I think what gives it validity uh, has to be measured by the reader themselves after they've read the book. But these are the ten traits, characteristics, tactics of, of the ten best new performing CEOs in the country. Uh, if I were in business, I'd sure want to know what they were. I, um, I, I congratulate you on one point, and maybe you can correct me on this. When I go down the list of these companies, everybody has taken some uh, economic hits. There's, there's nobody who has not here. Uh, but in, in your ten companies... Uh, I think that most of them are, are, are survivors or thrivers in this economy. Is that fair? Uh, they are. Uh, I, it, well, look, uh, I, we just did the exercise uh, uh, about a week ago. I was kind of curious as to, uh, because they earned entry into the book because of the shareholder value they created. Theoretically, if you believe in free markets, you say that this share of stock in General Motors or this share of stock in any company uh, is 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 what this company is worth. It, it's factored in the good news. It's factored in the bad news. It's factored in the past. It's factored in future earnings, and and this is what that company is worth. Now, uh, just as at fourteen thousand, I think the Dow was probably irrational. I think the Dow was probably irrational uh, right now, um, which makes it more irrational at sixty six hundred. That, that's that's exactly that's exactly <laughs> you're, right. You're, you're a, if you're a buyer at sixty six hundred. You yeah maybe you feel differently right. at seventy nine but you 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 feel pretty good about yourself right but but in the long term the the marketplace is fair I I mean I I do believe that so about two weeks ago we went back and we said well we wonder how our companies have fared I mean you know bank financials are up ninety percent I mean many stocks are down seventy or eighty percent uh, Warren Buffett Berkshire Hathaway just lost their Moody rating this morning I mean downgraded. Doesn't he an investment in, in Moody? And he owns Moody. <laughs> He's the largest shareholder at Moody. And uh, so, so, so we went back and we said, well, how far are our companies down? 
uh, because other than Dollar General stores and uh, I guess Walmart, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, McDonald's, Dollar Stores, and Campbell Soup, I think are the only three stocks that uh, are above their 52-week highs. Well, and, may, and maybe Apple. And maybe Apple. So everybody's been slammed. And so we went back. And, yes, the stock of, uh, of all the companies in the book are down. Uh, however, they're down about half of what the general market is down. Yeah. Um, well, they, they certainly are not companies that are in the limelight and the headlines. No. Much like uh, City or... No, no. And they, and they wouldn't have been able to get through the research. Um, uh, you know, for all of my books... Uh, somebody told me yesterday, uh, many people uh, have compared my works, or many people do compare my works frequently uh, to uh, Jim Collins' Good to Great, and I would say the only thing that we share in common is that we both use good, solid research. Uh, but somebody was telling me yesterday that uh, uh, two of the companies in Good to Great, uh, Circuit City, uh, no longer with us, and, uh, and Fannie Mae, uh, um, kind of discredit uh, part of the book. You know, none of my companies that I've ever written about have ever gone away. Uh, they're they're all still there and they're all still doing their thing. And so I haven't uh, I haven't faced that embarrassment yet. So all of these companies are are doing very well. Uh, they're trading very successfully, and um, uh, and they will continue to do so. I think that's the nice thing about the books I write. Uh, two or three years later, I'm able to pick them up and say, Wow, they're still doing well. When you open the book. You have a chapter on do you have what it takes, 20 quick questions. Tell us how that entered into uh, a book of this kind. Well, I, why, I guess... Why did you do that? Yeah, I guess I, I guess I walked away from the research, Paul, having reaffirmed for me that conventional wisdom is really stupid because the best that you could ever hope to achieve with conventional wisdom uh, are conventional results. And we encountered during the period of our research a lot of unconventional wisdom. And so, you know, sometimes uh, during a speech you tell a joke to get attention. Uh, sometimes you try to shock people uh, to, get, to get their attention. Uh, I guess I want to demonstrate um, that uh, conventional wisdom, it's time to throw conventional wisdom in terms of business leadership out the window. And so I was thinking about that show, uh, which I've got a couple of times on television, Are You As Smart As a Fifth Grader? <laughs> right. And um, so that, so I actually wanted to title this, uh, you know, Are You As Smart As a CEO? Or Are You As Smart As a Great CEO? And uh, in, in thinking about it during the editing process, uh, we downplayed that a little bit to uh, Do You Have What It Takes? 20 Quick Questions and basically picked uh, questions uh, from throughout the book uh, that buck conventional wisdom. Now, it's, it's, it's an interesting way to engage, uh, to engage the reader. Uh, hopefully. I, I hear from lots of people. Um, um, I, I get about 100 emails a day from people who have read my books or attended speeches. I, I respond to every one of them. I figure if people take the time to find me, then I'm, I'm honor-bound to respond to them. Sometimes it's only two or three lines, but I do get back to everybody. Uh, and people have had a lot of fun with the test. And it's interesting uh, to get emails saying, I just took the test and I got all of them except one right. I, I just heard from a, a, 
a female CEO in Australia two days ago, and she said, I was so excited that I only got one of them wrong. She said, but that's probably because I've heard you speak several times. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's a good thing. I guess it is. <laughs> that's, that's a very high grade. What's your, uh, what's your favorite story in the book? There are so many of them, but... Um, but what was the most revealing to you? What was the one that created the biggest surprise? And sort of when you, obviously, you will use these stories yeah. on your speakers' uh, sure. tours, and you've got uh, yeah. ten of them. Uh, why, yeah. why is one of them a favorite? Yeah. Um, for me, um, I like when those eureka moments occur that um, dur during the process of, of, of researching a book, I'm really on the go, and I don't have time to process uh, a lot of the information, and I try very hard not to come uh, to conclusions too early on in the process. Uh, my problem with most business books uh, is uh, they come up with a clever title, and then they go out in search of confirming evidence to prove that title. Uh, I have always said that I want to begin a book knowing nothing about the subject and having an empty piece of canvas, and uh, the canvas will get filled at the completion of the research, and we're not going out to try to prove a particular point uh, or prove a hypothesis. Um, but uh, during the period of research, occasionally something will happen that causes things to coalesce or come together, and I, I call them my little eureka moments. And so you asked for my favorite story, and it came down just this way. Uh, I had been out on, on, on research for, oh, I don't know, four or five, six months. And finally one day I find myself sitting in uh, little tiny Orville, Ohio, uh, at uh, the J.M. Smucker Company. Now, most people would not think of Smuckers uh, as, as a company that hit the ground running. I mean, they've been around for 100 years. It's a publicly traded company, but five generations of family control. I mean, what have they ever done to hit the ground running? Well, the reality is, is that in 2001, they were doing $500 million uh, a year in revenues. This year, they'll do $5 billion. Uh, eight years ago, they, were, uh, they had a leadership position in one food brand. Today, they're leaders in eight cutthroat food brands. Uh, I, I think they just epitomize uh, leaders who hit the ground running. And so I was sitting with the two brothers, uh, Tim and Richard Smucker, in a conference room, and I was asking them about the magic or, or what's allowed them to be so successful. And uh, Tim said, well, you know, we pretty much follow the golden rule. And his brother said, uh, Jason, do you know the golden rule? And I said, well, of course I know the golden rule. I, I never missed Sunday school as a kid. And they right. said, and well, you, were you, had, you had a calling maybe to be a preacher man. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, they, and they said, well, what is the golden rule, Jason? And I said, well, the golden rule is very simple. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. And they looked at each other, and they kind of smiled, and they said, well, that's part of it. Do you know the other part? And I said, what do you mean the other part? And they said, well, that's, that's half the golden rule, but it's not the important part. I said, well, no, the only thing I was ever taught was, uh, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. And they said, well, you're missing the important first words. And I was sitting there thinking, what, were the, what are the words that I'm missing? And uh, finally, one of them said, look, I'm, do we have a Bible here any place? Uh, I mean, so it took... It <laughs> go, took to the, a, go to the, the stand to see if Gideon saw it. Yeah, well, it took five or ten minutes, but they finally found a Bible from downstairs someplace, and they brought it up, and they turned to Galatians, uh, and I even knew that the golden rule was in Galatians. <laughs> and they said, here, read it, starting here. 
And I looked down, and I'd never seen the words before. And the golden rule actually begins, do not be deceived. God shall not be mocked. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. Do not be deceived. And I remember later that afternoon as I was walking down bucolic Strawberry Lane in Orville, Ohio, Orville, on, Ohio. on the campus, all of a sudden I thought, Kazam, this is true of all of these CEOs. They do not deceive themselves. And most people in business, I believe, deceive themselves by 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 concluding that they can fool other people and get away with it. You know, having studied more than 100,000 companies, you could imagine, I mean, how many companies I've encountered who routinely lie to their customers, promise everything, deliver nothing. How many companies lie to their vendors and suppliers or beat their vendors and suppliers up? Uh, how many lie to their workers? How many lie to their shareholders? And the reality is, I mean, if you deceive others, you're thinking that you're going to get away from it. I mean, but whether it's a higher power or karma, it's going to come back and bite you in the backside without question. And so I think the realization that one of the things that all ten of these most remarkable leaders have in common is they operate with zero deception. Uh, They don't deceive their customers, workers, vendors, and suppliers by not trying to deceive them, they're not deceiving themselves, and they are truly following, embracing and following and living uh, the golden rule. So uh, you asked me for my favorite story. I guess that's probably one of my favorite stories from the book, but I also think it speaks to the goodness and the humility uh, of, of, the, of the CEOs that I ended up writing about. That's right. And, and you, you could also throw the Bible in there as well as one of the... One of the, right. a, a real teaching moment. It raises the question, and I hadn't thought of it until I heard you speak just now, and I am speaking with Jason Jennings. The book hit the ground running, A Manual for New Leaders. Is there an overlay on any of these companies, of any of these companies, with they being uh, in the top rank of perceived companies to work for? How well, you know, best, best, best companies in terms of employment practices. Um, I know that your focus was yeah. on the CEO, but I'm looking at the other side of that company, yeah. either the happiness quotient or yeah. good places to work or good places for women or gender. It, Were there other overlays that you sure. used? Okay, yeah, let me, let me respond this way. Um, I, and I'll have to respond uh, based on my observation and, and anecdotally. Um, uh, but I, th- I think you'll find my answer uh, acceptable. Um, anecdotally, I can tell you that a number of these companies uh, have consistently made uh, the fortune list of the best places to work. Okay. Uh, Smuckers has been on that list uh, every single year. Staples has been on that list. Humana's been on that list. Goodrich has been on the list. So a disproportionate number of, of, the co- of these companies led by these CEOs uh, consistently make those lists of the good places to work, or the great places to work. Um, uh, also, anecdotally, I would tell you that um, uh, people are always asking me about the next book I'm going to write, and I don't know if this is going to be the next book I'm going to write, but one of the observations, uh, I, I think a powerful observation I, I, I made during the process of this book, and again, 
100,000 pages of transcripts. Uh, a book is 240 pages. You just can't get everything in. Uh, these companies absolutely look like their customers. Uh, there are disproportionate numbers of women uh, in executive and leadership ranks. There's disproportionate numbers of African Americans, uh, Hispanics, and Asians in leadership in these companies. These companies truly look a lot uh, like their customers. Interesting perspective. Interesting perspective. Um, of these companies, and I want to I want to talk to your uh, to your research and your conclusions. Right. Um, the the purpose of this book and the overlay of companies, obviously there's a – the method – and let me back up. Let me re, re, rephrase this. It seems to me that a lot of business books are thin in part because they have a very good idea, but they can't really expand on it. And it, it's, it's really more of a 50-page book than it is a 250-page book. You avoid that by storytelling uh, and, and the like. What are the conclusions that a reader should draw from this book? What would you like people to leave the congregation when Jason Jennings leaves the bully pulpit of the book? What do you want people to come away with? Wow, powerful question. Um, I, I, I want them. I would want them to come away um, rejecting conventional wisdom or the conventional wisdom we've all been led to believe. I, I, I would want them to say, you know what, I'm a good person and I have always been led to believe that if I am going to be a successful leader in business, I'm supposed to do whatever it takes to hit the numbers. I'm supposed to be secretive. I'm supposed to be imperial. I'm not allowed to show any weakness. I'm supposed to have all the answers. Uh, I'm, I'm supposed to be prepared to fire people as quick as I need to fire them. Uh, and, and none of those things feel good. Uh, they really don't, but we've been, we've been taught that that's what you're supposed to do. Look who we have celebrated uh, in American business. I mean, you take a guy like Donald Trump. I don't know. Do you want your children to grow up to be like Donald Trump? And I, and I mean, we even give him a television show, and we we anoint him and crown him as a uh, a leader. I mean, somebody who uh, uses bankruptcy court uh, as frequently as he uh, as he wants or needs to. I mean, somebody who has been sued more than two thousand times uh, for non-payment or late payment of bills and invoices. Somebody uh, who would have Dennis Rodman on his show. That, that's exactly <laughs> right. I mean, for God's sake, I don't want my kids to be like him. Uh, but this is what we personified. We've said this is what you need to do to be a leader. Uh, I would want somebody to read the book, and I'd want them to say, I, I, I can't believe it. I mean, I, I, I want to be a good person, and guess what? You can be a good guy, and you can finish first at the same time. And here's how some real good guys finished first. Interesting. Uh, Jack Welch? Um, I... Uh, I, I, I um my mother taught me that if you can't say something nice about somebody, uh, don't say anything. Um, I, I would share this observation about Mr. Welch. Um, uh, about a decade ago, uh, we knocked on our home and built the dream house on the same spot and uh, went with all GE top-of-the-line uh, appliances. 
uh, you know, including the $8,000 refrigerator or whatever it was. Well, it turns out the refrigerator uh, didn't work, and, and they had to replace it. And then a few months later, the refrigerator didn't work, and they had to replace it again. And finally, in utter frustration and getting nowhere, I actually get on the telephone with the man who runs the plant where the refrigerator is built. And I said, you know, how can this happen for a company so committed uh, to Six Sigma? I mean, an error-free production. How could this possibly happen? He said, you know, that Six Sigma stuff's a load of bullshit. He said, Welch talks about that out in public. He said, but we don't really practice it here. Um, that would be one comment I would make. Uh-huh. And, then the, and then the other comment uh, I, I make, um, uh, I guess, would be that um, uh, I, 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 want a ho- I want my heroes uh, and uh, leaders um uh to practice um what they preach in all aspects of their life uh not just their business life amen and um i ceased being a fan of mr welch uh because of the way he so badly treated uh, a former wife and began an affair before the marriage was even over and tried to take advantage of his former wife who had stood by his side for so many years and and was so instrumental in making him uh, what he was. Uh, I I, want to see goodness on on the part of my leaders, and and I've just never felt that that existed there. So generally generally when the television comes on and he's there, I turn it off. Fair comment. I think that's, uh, that's very valid. Uh, and, and I, uh, McLaughlin, I work here speaking with uh, Jason Jennings. It's it's always nice to speak with somebody who you agree with. Um, <laughs> Isn't it, though? <laughs> that's what they said about uh, uh, Mr. Sapphire in the New York Times. I love the way he writes. Now, you, you like the way he writes, but you also agree with what he says, so that makes it a lot easier to, <laughs> to, to stomach. Um, the stories you you have developed are obviously grist for your own speaking mill. A uh, couple of questions about that, but before I get to that, I, I do want to I do want you to give some practical tips on on speaking. What is the uh, for the companies? And, and I didn't read it close enough to understand this, but when you look forward on your crystal ball, mm-hmm. give us your sense of in the business world, social networking, business life, work balance, um, the internet. How are things going to change for the leaders of tomorrow? Because your book is a manual for new leaders, perhaps those yet unborn. Is Are we entering, in your opinion, Jason Jennings, a whole new era so that notwithstanding personal probity and good business practices, that the world that our next are going to inherit is so fundamentally different that even some of the traits, the business traits that you point out here, will uh, be unalterably changed, if you can have something unalterably changed. Could you address that whole sure. uh, area? Yeah, um, I had one of those little eureka moments uh, last week. I was uh, in Los Angeles, and <laughs> there's, uh, there's a group called... Have, for those of us on the East Coast... Can you have a eureka moment in Los Angeles? That doesn't... Yeah, you can. <laughs> okay. uh, and let me tell you and about mine. Tell me about one. Uh, I was uh, I was invited down to speak to a group called First Thursday. 
Uh, First Thursday is a group of uh, venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, and CEOs uh, in the digital world. And uh, most of these people have uh, built companies uh, for $100 million and sold them, and they're on their third or fourth company. Uh, one man, Yuri, uh, sold his first company to IBM for $2 billion, and he, that's $2 billion, and has done about 15 startups after that, and plus all of these venture capitalists. And uh, so there I was speaking to them. And um, Are you a digital guy? Uh, I'm a digital orphan uh, in, in many respects. <laughs> I, 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 I hope I'm not a digital orphan, but sometimes that's the way I describe myself. But as I was talking to them about findings from the book, uh, the findings were just so, uh, one, in, incredibly well-received. They were so excited uh, about them. And in spending a lot of time talking to these people, uh, you know, these people are young for, for the most part. These are 20-somethings and, and 30-somethings. And as I left there and the car was driving me away, I thought, you know, these people really get it. Do they get it because they're smart? Do they get it because they're young? Um, But this is the way these people want to operate. Um, Do they get it because they're optimistic and hopeful about the future and some who have seen what we have in the past do not have that same faith in the future? I, 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 Paul, I think that that might very well be part of it. But, but in my travels, I get to hang out with a lot of people in their twenties and thirties, and uh, I would say the the virtues and values going forward in business, which excite me very much, is is people want to be good people. They want to do the right thing. They don't want to get pulled over to the dark side. Um, uh, they they do believe in transparency. I, I think that's where the digital world is going. I think everything is going to be absolutely transparent. Um, and I, I, I think that young people, 20s and 30s, who, who get it, just look back at some of the conventional wisdom and say, that was so stupid. I mean, why did, why did these old folks do stuff that way, or why did they act that way? And so I am, I am so optimistic going forward. I, I truly am. You have uh, children of an age where they would be entering the workforce? Uh, not quite. A few years away. Okay. Uh, and you're, are you optimistic for the world that you left them? Uh, I am. I am very optimistic. I think because of the transparency. Uh, it was uh, probably ten years ago it was a, a, a game changer. I was working on my first book, and uh, I needed, uh, I, I wanted something from a former senator from Michigan, Senator Regal, and I had worked on a campaign for him 25 or 27 years ago, and I just I couldn't contact anybody at his office. I mean, they were not interested. I couldn't get to him, and so I was doing I was doing a Yahoo uh, people search. And, um, and, and the Yahoo people search, which was very rudimentary 10 years ago, led me to another site where for 1995 or 995 or whatever it was, you could get all the information about somebody. And so on a lark, I typed in his name. Uh, I typed in, I knew he was, uh, he maintained a home near Traverse City, Michigan. And I typed in my credit card number. And I turned around, I went back to work, I forgot about it. And 10 minutes later, ping, you've got mail. And I turn around. 
and here's a report on the senator. And it had, uh, in, in the pages that followed, uh, listed uh, his rented home uh, in suburban Washington, uh, his two homes in Michigan, uh, the property uh, parcel numbers, uh, the, his children, the ages of his children, his Social Security number. I mean, there was all this, all this information. And I thought, you know what, uh, this is an incredible game changer because now information is becoming democratized because in the past, uh, knowledge was power, and only those with the money had access to the knowledge. And uh, so a titan on Wall Street could get whatever uh, whatever information they needed. I mean, here I'm going to pay you to go out and get this information in somebody, and, and the information they gathered was actually a competitive advantage. Well, that's gone. That, that, that's finished, because now the same knowledge is available to everybody, whether you're a kid uh, with uh, high-speed uh, access in Sri Lanka, uh, or whether you're a titan of Wall Street, uh, the same information is available to everybody. So you ask me, do I think this is going to be a better world? I think it's going to be an immeasurably better world because I don't think you're going to be able to hide the dust balls under the bed anymore. Uh, I think it's all going to be out there for everybody to see and let everybody make their own decisions. And then you ask the question, do I believe that are people basically good? I believe that people are basically good, then armed with, uh, uh, armed with a democratized uh, flow of information will they make the right decisions i think they will uh, and i think the best times are still to come well and uh you know one of the things that won't change is that there'll still be dust balls under the bed uh there may be i think there'll be fewer <laughs> uh okay few minutes left here um with uh, jason jennings want to uh for you to educate the uh, good audience here at mclaughlin at work also looking down at uh, classroom 24-7 that's one way that they can go about web learning and, and their um, certification training. But how would, uh, what's it like to be a speaker? What, what, are, the, what are the tidbits in the, in the next three or four minutes that you can tell people who uh, are going to go through the kind of epiphany that you did to become what you are, a very successful author and, uh, and speaker? What, what are, tell us how. Yeah, well, well, first of all, uh, on, on rare occasion. Um, at uh, St. Mark's Lutheran Church in San Francisco, where we attend, uh, I'm asked to be one of the lectors, and uh, so that means uh, standing up from your pew and walking to the front of the church and either reading the first lesson or the second lesson, which is generally something from the Bible, 10 or 12 verses. I will tell you that every time I've ever been a lector, I, I stand up and I'm, I'm quaking in fear, and I walk to the front of the church, and I've, I've got a dry mouth, and I'm, I'm extraordinarily nervous just reading a few Bible verses in front of the church. I think it speaks to how nervous people are or get about public speaking. A number of surveys have shown that people are actually uh, more afraid of public speaking than death. Um, I won't go quite that far, but I will tell you that um, I'm, I'm very nervous before a speech. And if anybody told me that I had to get up in front of a, a group of 500 people or 5,000 people or the biggest audience I ever did, 10,000 people, if anybody said you've got to get up in front of these 10,000 people and give a speech, I'd say there's no way in hell that I could ever do that. None. I couldn't get up and speak. What I do is the way I'm able to deal with speaking, and I think maybe why I've had some degree of success, is as I'm being introduced, uh, I don't think that I'm going to get on stage and give a speech because I would be petrified. Uh, as I look back to my favorite teachers and professors over the years, they were all incredible storytellers. 
and the big lessons that I learned were as a result of stories. And so as I'm walking on stage, I truly imagine uh, that there's a campfire there and that we're going to be sitting around and I'm going to have an opportunity to tell some stories uh, with some very important lessons to be learned attached to those stories. So one, I, I see myself as a storyteller, um, not as a speaker. I, 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 every time I go to my website and I see author, speaker, consultant, I go, what, what, what in the dick is that? <laughs> I mean, I'm not really a speaker. I am a, t- I'm a teacher, yep. uh, and I love to, uh, and I love to tell stories. I think the second key is this. Um, um, I, I've seen a lot of speakers where it's truly um, all about them. Uh, and I truly believe when you start to believe your own press clippings uh, or your own biography, you're taking yourself too seriously. And so, so I guess the second thing is I, I see myself as a storyteller. Number two, it's not about me. It's not about me. Um, at some point, I just give it up to a greater force when I'm walking on stage and saying, Jason, it's not about you. It's not about how you sound. It's not about how you look. Get over that. I mean, it is truly only about the audience. It is only about the audience. And I mean, making them smarter, making them laugh, making them happy, making them feel good. It's no longer about you. It's about them. And then the third thing that I take great comfort in that allows me to do what I do is uh, I know that there's nobody sitting in an audience who wants me to fail. I know that. Yeah. I know Good that point. everybody in that audience wants me to be successful. It will make their time worthwhile having spent it with me. And so, one, it's, uh, it's storytelling. Two, it's not about me. It's about them. And it's the warmth and the comfort and the knowledge that everybody sitting out there wants me to succeed. Those are the three things that I think about a lot. Well put. Jason Jennings, author of Hit the Ground Running, a manual for new leaders, also speaking to his, addressing his speaking engagements, how to get it done. Uh, Mr. Jennings, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you today. I enjoyed oh, I've, the enjoyed, I've, I've enjoyed this hour as much as any interview I've ever done. Uh, and uh, I love your intellect and I, I love the questions and I, I really welcome the opportunity to be asked some questions that I normally don't get asked and have to respond to in short little sound bites. This has been a, it's been a real pleasure, a high point of my day. Well, terrific. And, and I hope that we get a chance in the fullness of time to, uh, to meet each other. Let's do that. Good. Jason Jennings, thanks very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Paul. Paul McLaughlin with Jason Jennings absolutely delightful individual you come across some of these folks who you haven't met you've read their book you've seen their picture and when you hear the voice all i can tell you is that uh, jason jennings comes across as a real person i'd pay money to hear jason jennings if i had an organization that uh, needed a speaker i'd first invite me and then i'd invite jason jennings because he's honest he's fair he's done his research he has something to say he says it well he's compelling and there is that something about the voice that allows one to believe, to buy into the story being told. And when it has something to back it up, makes it all worthwhile. And our special thanks to Jason Jennings. Paul McLaughlin here, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace, bringing you the best of management, leadership, and employment in and around the workplace. Where would I be without you? Nowhere. 
Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back with us another episode next week on McLaughlin at Work. Later.